doing other things other than just harvesting saw log sized trees. You could be improving streams for fish passage. Really it's all about recognizing and appreciating other people's values. You get a bunch of folks together that have never worked together before, come from different backgrounds, all kind of working together and looking out for each other's interests. When you have open and honest dialogue, we can come up with objectives on the ground where everybody sees some part of their interest in the end result. If we can do it here in Sea Lake, you could do it anywhere. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series, Life in the Land, in their entirety. I'm your host, Lara Tomov. In this episode, we're in Sealy Lake, a community in the Clearwater watershed just south of the Swan Valley and an hour north of Missoula in western Montana. Nestled between two mountainous and forested wilderness complexes, along a string of lakes and rivers, this area is abundant in wildlife and communities whose year-round residents are tough enough to get through the winters here and closely connected to the natural elements of the environment. While outdoor recreation is a key factor in the economy in this region, the timber industry and related forestry jobs have been the driver here since the late 19th century. Today we're speaking with Gordy Sanders and Wendy Dalrymple of Pyramid Mountain Lumber. Pyramid is the largest employer in Sealy Lake and one of the largest employers in the greater region. It's the oldest surviving family-owned lumber mill in Montana. Since it began operations in 1949, Pyramid has deemed itself the Forest Stewardship Company understanding the interconnectedness of landscape health with the sustainability of natural resources and community well-being. Gordy and Wendy speak with us about what it can look like when a natural resource industry approaches its work through a stewardship lens, not only going above its expected duties as a lumber mill to be involved in work that benefits the greater ecosystem, but also to benefit the community that it's a part of. Pyramid is also intrinsically very collaborative in its approach, working closely with agency, tribal entities, conservation organizations, and other public and private interests. First, we hear from Gordy Sanders, who's the resource manager at Pyramid Mountain Lumber and has been employed there for 25 years. Gordy speaks with us about the value in this stewardship approach and about working with entities with different priorities. Here he is sharing with us about Sealy Lake as a place. What's unique about Sealy Lake is the fact that here we have every kind of natural resource imaginable. We also have every endangered species that exists. And it's very, it's interesting how everything can coexist. We have a great recreational attraction here with the lakes and in the wintertime there's cross country skiing and snowmobiling. And then of course they have the race for the sky, the big dog sled race. And in the meantime though, every, you know, the forested land has been actively managed between Forest Service land, state land, and private land. And then of course we've got the lakes, which attract a whole other cadre of folks. And it's a matter of working with others to come, you know, understanding and respecting their values and coming up with projects that actually benefit all the different interests that exist. And it's a small community. Year-round residents were about 2,000, maybe a little more. Summertime, 
that expands to maybe four or five thousand. Uh, there's a lot of summer homes and cabins here, but everyone kind of works closely with everyone else. They're all involved. Everyone knows everybody, um, and that's okay. We all work together. We all get along, but truly respect our natural resources and uh, like to see them, you know, not only thrive but expand. Certainly for in a sustainable way long term, so we can benefit. You know, future generations. Well, what's interesting about you know Pyramid Mount Lumber, you know, the owners, third generation, um, started this the mill in 1949. We've never owned any of our own land, so therefore we're totally dependent on all our forest landowners, federal, state, private, tribal, and so developing long-term relationships and partnerships with a wide variety of interests has been incredibly beneficial for us in the mill, as well as our employees, they're an integral part of you know, our whole operation in the community of Seeley Lake. And I almost got to talk about the broader community, which is Condon, Seeley Lake, Obando, Lincoln, and Potomac. Everything is kind of connected in the Blackfoot. We all work together to benefit everybody's best interest. Wendy Dalrymple works as the controller at Pyramid Mountain Lumber. She grew up in Seeley Lake, and after living out of state for some years, she recently moved back to raise her family here. Just a note, we're speaking with Wendy at the mill, so don't mind the machinery sounds in the background. Apologies. Wendy shares with me about the community of Seeley Lake. You know, it's a very small community and we're pretty close-knit. We support one another, uh, even if we don't necessarily know a family, if there's some sort of need, the community will come together and meet that need. And people are just friendly, I mean, a community like Seeley Lake, you know, you wave at everybody that goes by, whether you know them or not, you know, it's, it's just that close-knit sense of community, I think, that's, that's really special about this area. So our owners definitely emphasize community involvement, and they certainly lead by example. Uh, they have been involved in a wide array of organizations in Seeley, the Seeley Lake Elementary School Board, the High School School Board, the board for the Water District here, uh, we have employees that are members of the fire department, the ambulance crew, there's more, but I can't, I mean, we have a lot of people are very active in the community and they all try to give back. And in fact, when they posted the, the job, one of the key things they said was you have to be part of the community. You have to live here and be part of this community. It can't be somebody that lives outside of town or commutes, you know, you can't live in Missoula and commute from Missoula. You need to be part of the town. So it's, it's really important to them. It shows that Pyramid cares about this community. They've done a lot to help the community kind of stick together and grow. And, you know, we want to help our employees and keep Seely Lake thriving. I mean, without the community, we wouldn't have the mill. And without the mill, the community would struggle. So it's definitely important. You, you, don't, you, just, you don't realize how involved everybody is in keeping this town together. and serving on those different boards. I mean, one of the things that we've had been trying to do for 20 years is get a sewer in because we can't, the town cannot grow because the Missoula County requirements for permitting a septic tank, it's really hard to develop anything here. Uh, very expensive to develop anything. So we have a lot of employees actually that have served on that board, you know, in their off time. And everybody participates in the community to help 
improve it. I think Sealy kind of, it's pretty consistent. Uh, but I think one thing that, that has changed over time is just we get, we're getting more tourism and having more people come up here, which is definitely a good thing for the community, but it also provides some challenges in that people aren't aware of bears, for example, and how you need to take care of your food and your garbage. And, um, but it's been good to see more visitors to Sealy so that they're getting to know this area in the community. I mean, landscape-wise, having the bark beetle come through here, it's crazy that the, the lack of trees, you drive through town and it was just trees. Now you can drive through town, you can actually see the mill from the highway and you could never do that before. So that's one thing that's definitely changed over time. As I would say in particular recently, we've had a, an influx of people into the community and the state in general. And so property values in just in the last six months, it's been insane. Rentals are really hard to find. That, and that's the other problem is there just isn't anywhere to live here. Uh, but it is with, with people coming in, it's definitely been a, a huge change in that kind of dynamic of availability and affordability. Wendy tells me about the presence of Pyramid within the community. I knew coming in it's the biggest employer in Sealy Lake, uh, that it's a very critical part of this community. Uh, Pyramid almost closed down in 2000. They, it was a hard time in the lumber industry in general and there were a lot of mill closures around that time. And the, the owners persevered and were able to, to figure out funding to keep the mill open. And that's right around when I graduated from high school, so it was a pretty big, pretty big deal in Sealy. The mill employs approximately 120 to 125 people right now. Uh, we're severely short-staffed. We could employ up to 160 or 165 if we were to be able to get enough people to run full operation the way we wanted to with two shifts. It's probably been six years, give or take, that we've been pretty short-handed. Uh, I'd say it's worse right now than it's been even since I've been here. It's just tough to find people, it seems, across the industry and even just nationally, regardless of industry. Wendy was kind enough to give us a tour of the mill and led us on an intricate maze of machinery, a variety of stages from truck to packaged lumber, that certainly broadened my perspective of all the moving parts and jobs within a mill. One of the neat things that I noticed in every stage was the efficient use of waste byproduct from the mill operations. Yes, so one thing that a lot of people don't realize about sawmills and lumber mills in general is we don't have a lot of waste. All of our byproducts are repurposed and sold. Ours in particular primarily goes into particle board um, and fiber board. We also have the bark that we take off the logs. It's primarily used to fuel our boiler which is then used to steam dry the lumber before it goes through the planer. So really nothing goes to waste. Uh, if we do have, you know, breakage or, you know, little chunks of things that, that we can't utilize really in any other way, we, we have a big burn pile that we have set out back and we allow the public to come in with a permit during business hours uh, and kind of salvage what they can out of that pile for either firewood or kindling or projects. I mean, people come and find, you know, broken pieces of one by fours that are back there and they can use it to make things. So we allow the public to do that for free. Pyramid's model has allowed them to remain diverse, 
with the variety of tree species and sizes that they're able to receive, which is somewhat rare for a lumber mill. Wendy speaks to the ripple effect of this diversification on the local economy. And that allows the local loggers to bring us a wider variety of product out of the woods. We may only have 120 employees, but we support probably double that outside the mill in terms of those loggers and the businesses and the landowners and the forest service. So if, if we weren't here to take those products or somebody came in and took this over and changed that, the forest service would have a harder time with their timber sales and their land management. It would cost a lot more for those loggers to come in and do that work that needs to be done because they would then have to take it hundreds of miles away. So that makes us very unique and it helps support that, you know, that community of loggers and the Forest Service and the outlying businesses. Back to Gordy now, I ask him how the presence of Pyramid as a local, family-owned operation who do what they can to encourage diversification not only in the local economy, but in their own operations, how that's benefited the community and the environment. Well, the mill, I think they would say in 1949 when they started the mill, they had tar paper shacks and skunks underneath the floors. And so it's grown a lot from the early days. And so a lot of that comes with the economic stability that the mill provides in terms of good paying jobs, long-term employment. And I think that allows for other diversification to actually occur. So I think it's been critical. Uh, we're still here. There's a lot of stories about other locations where the infrastructure is totally lost. There are no mills and towns really shrink. People have to move to find other, other employment, the opportunity to feed their families and uh, find a living wage. I would say because the mill is here and we're operating, we're not a real large mill. There's about seven sawmills our size in the state of Montana left. Um, so, you know, we reach out a long ways to provide raw materials for the mill, to support the mill. And so there isn't any one place that actually provides all the material that feeds the mill. And so in that light, everything we do, most of the harvesting that occurs in the whole Sealy Swan Valley, it's kind of selective harvesting. You know, this stand right here was selectively harvested. You know, one truckload of saw logs per acre, one truckload of non-saw per acre, and it turned out great. And so it's very hard for people to criticize, you know, active forest management when you take a look at a stand like this that's already had some management. But it provides long-term benefits, you know, for wildlife, scenery, all the aesthetic values, recreation, as well as raw materials in the future. And going along with that, um, can you mention how Pyramid's part of the Sustainable Forestry Initiative and what that entails? Pyramid Mount Lumber joined the Sustainable Forestry Initiative in 2010. And the Sustainable Forestry Initiative is an international kind of a certifying body. And their purpose is to, for active forest management to provide the wide variety of benefits in terms of resources, regardless of what your interest is, 
long-term to benefit future generations. So we, get, we have a surveillance audit every year where they come and not only audit a lot of our contracts and our language, take a look at payments, take a look at, are we really tracking with ongoing and growing environmental kind of issues and concerns like climate smart forestry and uh, climate change and biodiversity. So we stay up to date on current information to apply that to not only how we look at things, but how we communicate with other landowners as we interact with forest landowners to help them kind of visualize what their long-term stewardship objectives are and communicate in that way. There is a new standard coming up next year that deals with climate smart forestry. And a lot of that revolves around basically mitigation and adaptation. You know, with climate smart forestry, the threats that are kind of built into that is there's a lot of conversation and uh, dialogue about forest land conversion. There's a lot of places around the country where forests are they're basically clear cut for other uses kind of permanently. And I think there's this growing because naturally we're more about selectively harvesting, you know, making sure that we're leaving the healthiest trees behind and seeing them grow faster and bigger. Um, but some folks don't see things that way or across the country. So I see there's more, a lot more dialogue about forest land conversion, wildfire goes a long way to take that stored carbon and put it up in the air and adds to global warming and a lot of other issues. The more we can manage, the less catastrophic wildfire there is. Instead, let's use prescribed fire. We actually introduce prescribed fire. This particular stand, you know, the black on these trees came from a prescribed fire, it was an underburn after the harvesting was done. It was specifically designed to stimulate Western larch production, which needs a little bit of bare mineral soil in order to germinate. So we're big, we're supporters of prescribed fire management, but you gotta reduce the forest fuels before you can actually execute a prescribed fire and actually manage the end result. The community of Sealy Lake is no stranger to catastrophic sized wildfires. As their small town center is in a forested ecosystem between two mountain ranges, they have experienced multiple area wildfires in recent years. Wendy tells me about the reality of these fires for residents. So fire season in Montana can be a pretty scary thing. And honestly, this year it's, it's becoming one of those years. It's really dry and it's been really, really hot really early in the season. Uh, and we're already seeing the result of that. It's, it's smoky and hazy right now. There have been two fires in the last 13, 14 years that were dangerously close to Sealy Lake. One of them was in 2017, where it came right over the ridge behind me and was threatening like the grocery store and the houses on Double Arrow. And you know, most of town was evacuated and the air quality in Sealy was dangerously high for months. Uh, and the other one was actually in 2007 and it was on the other side of the lake. And again, it was, I mean, they evacuated all of the houses on the other side of the lake. But those two big fires really brought an awareness to the community of this is really dangerous. We've got to do something about it. 
we need to maintain our forests so we don't burn down. I asked Gordy what it means for Pyramid to dub themselves the Forest Stewardship Company and the value in creating partnerships with a variety of entities well beyond the timber industry. You're doing other things other than just harvesting sawlog-sized trees. You could be doing pre-commercial thinning, you know, improving streams for fish, fish passage, and dealing with you know, long-term legacy roads that produce sediment that deliver to our bull trout streams here in Sea Lake. So we learned a long time ago that working together with others is incredibly beneficial. And so we've had long-standing relationships, as I said, not only with agency folks, you know, Forest Service, State, Bureau of Land Management, Tribal, and then with private, but we also have relationships and partnerships with other organizations like folks within the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, National Wild Turkey Federation, the Wilderness Society, Montana Wilderness Association. And uh, I think those folks, you know, I told the industry folks 30 some years ago, we can't do this by ourselves. We got to develop partnerships with other folks with different interests where we can come up with you know, objectives on the ground that everybody can live with, where everybody sees some, some part of their interest in the end result. This particular project was actually one that we looked at as part of the Montana Forest Restoration Committee in the spring of 2007. And we had, in that organization, we had 34 folks that came together, some of which were long-term litigants. They were members of recreation community, outfitters and guides. You know, one of the things we did is when we convened, everybody kind of laid out on the table, what were their issues? And they came up with a list of 68. Out of that 68, we broke that down into like 13 basic principles. And then we had subcommittees that worked on, okay, what does a restoration project really look like? So we actually came to this stand to review, does this meet everybody's kind of vision of a restoration project. And, you know, one of the longtime litigants said, well, certainly, this is perfect. So that kind of led us down this track of working closer together. One thing you learn over the course of time is you build on previous successes. And so there's been a lot of interaction with a lot of these different entities over the years to accomplish greater, bigger things for the greater good, if you will. And one of those became the Southwest Crown of the Continent Collaborative, which came together to submit a proposal for CFLR. Did a lot of recreational improvements, stream improvements, road improvements, and fuel reduction projects you know, here in the valley. Also in that group, a different group of folks, some of the same folks though that worked on the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Project, which is currently legislation which once again Senator Tester introduced that would actually designate wilderness here in Sealy Lake as well as provide the current version provides a kind of a long-term directive for the agency for the Forest Service to come up with a 10-year plan which from my perspective kind of provides some vision because one thing we see with agency folks is they get promoted they retire you know, a lot of things change, but if there's a roadmap, 
then there's some opportunity to kind of provide some consistency over the course of time. And I would say those areas that were selected, you know, to be designated as wilderness were part of the 1988 wilderness bill, which I was also involved in, that never were contentious up here in Sea Lake. And so it was like the low hanging fruit to actually move the ball and do something that benefited, you know, the partners that we've been working with, with the Montana Wilderness Association and the Wilderness Society. And they've been great to work with. You know, in 1991, I worked with uh, Autobahn, the Montana Logging Association, and Trout Unlimited to craft Montana's 19, uh, Streamside Management Zone Act, which basically has some restrictions on what you can and cannot do within 50 feet, 50 feet of a stream in the state of Montana. It has never been modified since we did that. So it, stand, it stood the test of time. It works good because it's common sense. You get the right folks together and you have open and honest dialogue and you can do some amazing things, but working by yourself, you can only accomplish so much. And with that work, what are some of the realistic challenges of that collaborative work? You know, there are a number of challenges that come with collaboratives, brick and mortar collaboratives. And then there are collaborative processes which, you know, I'm convinced, you know, you can have collaboratives that kind of convene, meet once a month, talk about projects, what they're interested in, and try to actually have some influence, provide some information to uh, decision makers that can be beneficial, and the agencies have grown to recognize the benefit of that. Uh, it's been harder for some agency folks coming along, and I understand that, but they're kind of getting a little more used to interacting with folks rather than just they make the decision and throw it out there and then everybody goes to war. Um, so, but working together within a collaborative, it's very important that a collaborative is balanced, meaning you've got environmental interest, you've got community interest, you've got resource interest, you know, all kind of working together um, and looking out for each other's interests. I think that's, over the course of time, that's exactly what happens. And so the challenge is how to keep those folks together, constantly meeting. They can't meet every single month talking about the same project for three years. So you've got to constantly be bringing up new ideas, new areas, new things for them to actually provide input with. And that's really up to the leadership and that collaborator, which usually it's not someone from the agency. It's someone who's a, a member of some other, some other organization or interest who chooses to step up and take a leadership role. The other venue that's out there is the collaborative process, which I think has great benefit in a rural state like Montana, where you can pick a location like could be Stanford, could be Roundup, and you, know, you want some input you know, to get someone locally to kind of convene stakeholders. Key folks that the public in general, the community listens to, to actually bring them together. You don't want to be exclusive, but you want to make sure you got the key stakeholders present and engaged. And you may only meet once or twice and provide some input. You know, once you have some discussion, go on a field trip, provide some input, 
and then you disband. So you don't have to meet every single month. So I think there's, it happens. It's not called collaborative process, but it does happen. And there's a, a greater opportunity there in these rural communities. You know, I chair the Montana Forest Collaboration Network, which is a organization that kind of provides, you know, our mission is to kind of help collaborative processes for the betterment of forests and grasslands for the benefit of all. It's kind of a broad statement, but right now there's 23 collaboratives that are part of you know, our network. And we have an advisory committee that's made up of folks from the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, you know, the Wilderness Society, Wilderness Association, you know, the logging community, Montana Wood Products, you know, different community members, and you know, as well as all the agencies. And I think that provides a good medium to have a good conversation about what direction we're going, how do we grow the footprint of collaboration across Montana and elsewhere. And so I think we've been very successful at that. The Montana Forest Action Plan is one of those efforts where, again, there was, what, 25 of us to help the agency, DNRC, and, and they worked with the Forest Service and BLM, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks to provide actually a plan that would be a 10-year plan for the state of Montana that benefits you know, our forested environment long-term. And out of that effort came up with over 9 million acres in the state of Montana that's at risk of forest, forest health, insect disease, and wildfire, which is a big number. So we modified that, kind of narrowed it down to those that are easily accessible with roads and came up with some, about 3 million, near, almost 4 million acres that are you know, areas for high priority uh, treatment and focused attention. And the thought is for agencies to kind of convene resources, work together and others to actually do as much as we can in those areas over the course of time, you know, pool resources rather than what they call random acts of restoration in places. Do something that's really at a landscape level that makes a difference. The Flathead Reservation lies immediately to the west of Sealy Lake, just over the Mission Mountains. Those lands are home to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. In a different episode, you can hear directly from the CSKT Forestry Director and members of the Division of Fire there and hear about their holistic approach to forest management and the use of prescribed fire, but also the importance of working in partnership with neighboring jurisdictions, not only for ecosystem scale management, but as these valleys are ancestral homelands of those tribes and were for thousands of years. I asked Gordy about the partnership that Pyramid has with CSKT and other tribes in the region. You know, when you think about larger landscape, CSKT on the other side of the mountains not far to the west has their own tribal forest management and we've worked closely with those folks on a lot of projects including the forest action plan. This site right here is actually one of the sites when the tribes came through to hunt buffalo they stopped here and they would burn this area regularly but it's one of those locations where they would convene keep it open and uh, make sure they had grass for their horses. Tribes have used Montana's forested land forever. You know, a significant amount of our volume every year 
comes from tribal sources, which we're very dependent on. They do a great job managing their forest land in their own way, but they're, it isn't so awful different than what I've described already. And your voice also, what's unique about it is it's representing industry and business. Um, what would be something that you'd say for natural resource industry in general, just as far as this approach of taking stewardship in mind and how, you know, with a business, how businesses work, it's the bottom line, right? So if they, you know, folks who might say like, well, if it doesn't benefit the bottom line, but maybe in the, you know, it's about looking at the long run that in the long run it actually does, if that's true. And just, just that incentive to take the path that yourself and Pyramid takes. Um, that could be used for natural resource industry in general. You know, I'm thinking about how Pyramid as a company operates here in Sea Lake and your, you know, how we view stewardship and restoration and working together with other folks. Really, it's all about, you know, recognizing and appreciating other people's values. And so what that translates into is giving some thought to different projects on what can be most beneficial? Obviously, from a business perspective, we're always looking for, we have to make a profit at some point in time. I mean, that's just the nature of the game. But if we're working with other folks and there's a, recognizing their values to where they actually benefit also, then we wind up with more support for active management to actually grow you know, treatments on the ground, to have more of a landscape level effect in different projects all around the U.S. But uh, if we can do it here in Sea Lake, you could do it anywhere. And I think it's uh, reflective of that. But you know, the real incentive is you get a bunch of folks together that have never worked together before, come from different backgrounds, have their board approved missions. And when you have open and honest dialogue, you recognize 80, over 80% 80 of everybody's values are the same. There's very little difference. So you work on the 80% and then you grow that over time to where it's a bigger percentage of kind of common thinking. We're never all going to think alike because everybody's individuals. But when it comes to forestry, forest management, and regardless of your natural resource interest, you know, if we're doing an active, call it a timber sale or a stewardship project, and part of what we're doing is replacing an old culvert that has roots rusted out in the bottom with a bridge to benefit stream passage. Well, if you're a fisherman, that's a benefit to you. Out, up here, certainly, all of Sealy Lake is occupied grizzly bear habitat, and so certainly road density is an issue. So if we can, part of our project, we can, you know, obliterate some roads, you know, in a thoughtful way. But I think there's ways of doing things that benefit other interests. You know, one thing about foresters is we think in terms of 100 years. We're not thinking in terms of, you know, necessarily immediate results. You know, certainly that's part of the equation, but we're looking far beyond that. When you treat stands kind of in a selective way and you wind up leaving the best trees, whether they're from genetic reasons or just visual reasons, or other values they bring to the eco ecology of the area, I think you're automatically investing in the future opportunity to actually harvest that site again, maybe 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But it isn't just 
harvested and then you have to wait 50 years. For things such as the Sustainable Forest Initiative and the Climate Smart Forestry Initiative, um, to play devil's advocate, what about what would you say to folks that say, well, you can only do it sustainably or with that approach because you're smaller and smaller operation? Is this something that is scalable to larger operations? You know, it's interesting when we take a look at the Sustainable Forestry Initiative and this climate smart forestry that's surfacing will be in the new standards. Because it applies to, you know, all of us that are certified under SFI. And so we have very large companies that are members. You know, Weyerhaeuser is a member and Stimson is a member and, you know, Potlatch and, you know, a number of very, very large companies all over the U.S. are members. And so when you think about scale and you know, some kind of a landscape level thinking about climate smart, if you will, it definitely is scalable. You know, we're small, we don't control any land. So we're just working with others and sharing information as best we can. You know, one of the things we've done with the Montana Forest Council which is a state implementation committee for SFI, which I chair that group. We've actually produced most recently a brochure for landowners and loggers on bird habitat management. The previous one we did two years ago was bat habitat management. And then we produced one on biodiversity and one on special sites. And a lot of these concepts that we kind of made into a user-friendly, common-sense language and appropriate pictures as well as links to different information for folks to kind of broaden that perspective. Um, and all the companies are using that information and a lot of what we do has gone beyond the borders of Montana. So that's a good thing too. Thank you to Gordy Sanders and Wendy Dalrymple for speaking with us. You can find out more about Pyramid Mountain Lumber at pyramidlumber.com. Find out more on the work of the Montana Forest Collaboration Network at montanaforestcollaboration.org. And learn more about the collaborative legislation currently proposed for this region that Gordy mentioned, the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act at blackfootclearwater.org. All of these links are in this episode's show notes. We encourage you to check out the site lifeintheland.org to find the film featuring these voices on the Sealy Swan, as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Please reach out if you'd like to screen any of the films for free at your own workshop or gathering. Thank you all for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of the Salish, Kalispell, Kootenai, Blackfeet, and many other indigenous tribes that interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. Thank you to Peyton Butler for editing assistance on this episode and to Katie Sprout for production assistance in the field. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more stories that create connections around a thriving planet for all. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.
The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible completely through donation support. We'd like to thank the following generous supporters, Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Minelands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winna Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Park Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Witted, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, the Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. You can support future Life in the Land work with a tax-deductible contribution at lifeintheland.org.